When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Dr. Melik Farat Altai. I am a musician and a neuroscientist, and my research focuses on deciphering the pathomechanisms of neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. Today, I will be your host, and we will be talking to Dr. Mark Musterhelm about his new book, Forensic Colonialism, Genetics and the Capture of Indigenous Peoples, published by the McGill Queens University Press this year. Dr. Munsterhelm's research focuses on racism and ideology in genetic research on indigenous peoples. He is currently studying how several indigenous peoples in Latin America and the Pacific region have been objectified and incorporated into forensic genetic identification technologies and security-related biotechnology development. Forensic genetic technologies are popularly conceptualized and revered as important tools of justice, The research and development of these technologies, however, have been accomplished through the capture of various indigenous peoples, genetic material, and the subsequent ongoing genetic servitude. In Forensic Colonialism, Mark Munsterhelm explores how controversial studies of indigenous peoples have been used to develop racializing forensic technologies. Making moral and political claims about defending the public from criminals and terrorists, International networks of scientists, police, and security agencies have developed forensic genetic technologies firmly embedded in hierarchies that target and exploit many indigenous peoples without their consent. Munster Helm concludes that technologies produced by forensic genetics advance the biopolitical security only of privileged populations and that this depends on imposing race-based divisions between who lives and who dies. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Right. Before we move on to discussing forensic colonialism, um, please could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, certainly. Uh, I teach courses including research methodology, uh, social theory and policing and security in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Windsor in Canada. I have a, a master's degree in Indigenous Governance from the University of Victoria, Uh, There I wrote a a master's thesis on Canada-Taiwan Aboriginal exchanges. Uh, I was looking at how uh, these exchanges involve the use of uh, what I term hero rescue Indigenous peoples organizing narratives to coordinate amongst themselves. And there I became interested in how government and corporate um, networks cooperate. You know, how do they get along and how do they uh, organize themselves. Uh, later, when I 
pursued my PhD, I did uh, at the University of Windsor, I did a sociology uh, dissertation on sovereignty and racism in genetic research involving Taiwan Aborigines, uh, Maori and other Pacific Island indigenous peoples. And there I became very interested in the sort of the central roles of scientists and organizing these international networks and also the commercialization of genetics at that time. Uh, and I was became also interested in how these scientific networks could be kind of disrupted due to external criticism and pressure over research ethics and Aboriginal rights and sovereignty violations. Uh, during my PhD, I found patents filed by a leading uh, Taiwan health researcher uh, named Guying Chen of Kaohsiung Medical University. These involved over 1,500 Atayal Aborigines, and they... Um, which led to a 2010 controversy in Taiwan, national controversy, over the lack of informed consent for commercialization and other research violations. I found further patents in 2011, which led to another controversy, this involving, again, over 1,500 uh, Atayal Aborigines in Taiwan, but also nearly 200 Solomon Islanders, which led to controversies in Taiwan and the Solomon Islands. Uh, the Taiwan and Solomon Islands at that point having uh, diplomatic relations. So it tied in as well to Taiwan's um, diplomacy efforts. And uh, so these experiences highlighted to me the effectiveness of kind of closely analyzing how prominent scientists have used um, Indigenous peoples' genetic materials and data uh, as resources in their research and how this has routinely violated Indigenous peoples' rights and sovereignty, and also how such analysis through public engagement could contribute to disrupting the scientific networks. So uh, this is sort of where how I arrived in this uh, area of research around forensic genetics. And how did you come to writing Forensic Colonialism, and why now? I wrote this book out of a deep concern of how, under the guise of the so-called War on Terror, powerful, powerful networks of leading scientists, European, Chinese, uh, and U U.S. security agencies, as well as major genetic equipment manufacturers like uh, Illumina, uh, and Thermo Fisher, which are based in the U.S., and Quagen, which is a Dutch-German company, uh, were kind of pushing uh, the, well, particularly Illumina and uh, Thermo Fisher, were, were pushing and promoting forensic genetics expansion into ancestry inference and phenotype inference uh, research. Uh, these were essentially utilizing concepts of race that had long been discredited. And so in the name of sort of public security, uh, these networks organize themselves through a shared use of a manhunting narrative or uh, in which the scientists develop technologies to assist police and national security agencies in the identification of dangerous threats like murderers and terrorists. And in the name of public security, these powerful networks have expanded into ancestry inference and phenotype, uh, phenotype meaning visible appearance, uh, which is very problematic because it effectively resurrects what were once discredited categories of race and portrays them as somehow scientifically valid. They use euphemisms like ancestry and phenotype, uh, and which are fundamentally racial con. Uh, categorizing concepts. 
And this has all, all been done using indigenous people's uh, genetic materials, often taken decades ago, you know, in the 1970s even, uh, in and 1980s, in massive and systematic violations of contemporary ethics and legal norms. So, uh, you know, for example, like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, and this is a severe injustice that's at the center of these technologies that are supposed to advance justice. Mark, how do you define forensic colonialism? Forensic colonialism refers to the relationships between settler colonialism and international forensic genetic research and the hierarchies of racism and sovereignty within these uh, relationships through which scientists engage in research on indigenous peoples, variously using them as research resources and also developing these forensic genetic technologies that directly target them uh, as, you know, at a collective or population level. So again, this is the issue around categorizing peoples around racial concepts. And by settler colonialism, I mean states like Brazil, the United States and China that are successors to earlier empires and in which local indigenous peoples are displaced by settlers and variously assimilated, marginalized, and frequently subject to genocide, uh, such as the indigenous peoples of Brazil, and also the Uyghurs and other indigenous peoples in China, uh, in the contemporary, you know, at, at the current time. So in your book, you, you discuss about the Human uh, Genome Diversity Project. What is it? Uh, the Human Genome Diversity Project was first um, proposed by Kenneth Kidd of Yale University and Lucas Cavalli-Savorsa of Stanford University, who are both prominent figures in the field of population genetics. And this was in the mid-1980s. And they saw, and their uh, other uh, people that they were cooperating with, uh, sought to gather as many indigenous peoples, uh, particularly indigenous peoples, um, sam blood samples. And what they wanted to do was then uh, gather these into a huge collection. Originally, they were targeting some 500 to 700 indigenous group, largely indigenous populations on the premise that these people were uh, geographically isolated and they were disappearing due to the expansion of the modern world and that their genetic diversity would be lost to humanity. And so these scientists wanted to gather up that genetic diversity and keep it uh, to serve humanity in perpetuity, essentially putting them in a state of genetic servitude. Uh, the project itself, um, once it was publicly announced in the early 1990s, was sharply, sharply criticized uh, by Indigenous organiza organizations and activists as the Vampire Project and uh, biocolonialism and these activists and their uh, other social justice organizations began organizing uh, in an early effort using the internet uh, from 1993 onwards and they were very successful uh, they based the project was effectively shelved by the late 1990s and uh, only a small collection uh, now is uh, still being used but this collection is of about 1063 what are called cell lines 
uh, are still sitting in a, a Paris suburb and being used uh, in the development of various genetic technologies, essentially functioning as what they the involved scientists call a resource. Now, the way they've done this, uh, one of the goals of the, of the Human Genome Diversity Project was to take these blood samples and then to quickly uh, get them into a lab where they could go through a process called immortalization. Now, immortalization involves infecting the blood sample with a virus called Epstein-Barr virus, which is part of the herpes virus family. But this, uh, when it, when these uh, blood samples are infected with this Epstein-Barr virus, it has an important effect in that it turns off what is called cell apoptosis or cell death. And this allows the virally transformed blood samples to be grown in laboratories indefinitely. So unlimited amounts of, of genetic materials can be grown from this, uh, from these immortalized uh, cell, what are called cell lines. And these cell lines are still in service today. So people like the Caritiana and the Surui of uh, Western Brazil, who were sampled in 1987, have been transformed into vital resources in the research and development and testing of these new forensic genetic technologies. So the, the Human Genome Diversity Project is an example of how you know, major scientists have transformed Indigenous peoples into important resources. And this is very problematic and uh, has been widely, widely criticized uh, in, in the fields of genetic research and also in Indigenous rights issues. Rightfully so, indeed. Um, so in your book, you also discuss the concept of genetics as intelligence. How did the war on terror after 9-11 shape this concept? Well, intelligence can be defined as information that helps guide police investigation and manhunts and also security agency activities. Uh, concepts of intelligence-led policing date back to the 1970s and 80s. And after the 9-11 attacks, such ideas were fused with the war on terror. And in particular, there has been a concern about how to identify unknown suspects uh, using genetics who might not be in any database. Uh, for example, the FBI has a uh, database along uh, with now with the Homeland Security uh, with involving millions of different um, genetic profiles. But if these profiles are of an unknown suspect whose profile is not in those sorts of databases um, is found, they this raised the question then for the security agencies and policing, well, what do we do then? So after 9-11, citing uh, these serious difficulties, uh, the Bush administration uh, began its $1 billion president's DNA initiative. And this program was run by the U.S. Department of Justice and provided extensive funding for what was termed alternative genetic markers and assays, uh, genetic tests. Uh, I'll, I'll continue the quote here that can potentially provide further information about biological samples under investigation, such as estimation of ethnic origins, 
physical characteristics and skin color. So prior to nine um, and prior to 9/11, such efforts had been taboo due to the racist connotations. But after 9/11, uh, this was this expansion into what these um, racialized categories was allowed and encouraged and given a lot of money. And so what then what happened after 9/11 is we get a number of teams. Uh, around the world, uh, research teams in the US, Europe and China began research on ancestry and phenotype inference technologies, as such as by the early 10, uh, early 2010s, uh, the resulting technologies began to become commercialized. Uh, these efforts included Kenneth Kidd of Yale University, who developed a panel, a set of 55 ancestry inference markers, which are today, uh, which by 2015 uh, were being incorporated into Illumina and Thermo Fisher uh, forensic genetic systems that were then uh, being marketed to police and security agencies in the US, the European Union, China, and elsewhere. As well, by the late 2010s, or sorry, by the early 2010s, we also have efforts to um, in phenotyping, uh, such as a European Union funded effort uh, that included um, a, 2010, a 2011 patent application by uh, Manfred Kaiser and Leo Fan of Erasmus University in the Netherlands on eye color among European populations. Uh, so what we get is a, a series of efforts that seek after 9-11 that seek to expand the scope of genetic research uh, for, um, into what had once been um, kind of taboo areas of research around race, uh, uh, particularly overt race, racial categories like ancestry and also uh, visible appearance. And of course, another very controversial topic is to do with the genetic testing and data collection uh, in the Xinjiang area. Could you expand on this? Yes. Um, the implications of uh, this type of genetic testing are very and are very problematic. Uh, we should consider the uh, larger research context. Uh, since the late 2000s, the Chinese government's security apparatus has viewed the Uyghurs as potential threats, uh, particularly after 2009 clashes uh, between Han Chinese and Uyghurs in the Xinjiang uh, provincial capital of Urumqi, uh, which left around 200 people dead and many more uh, injured. And we see very quickly uh, a strong interest by the Ministry of Public Security's uh, Institute of Forensic Science uh, in identifying Uyghurs and uh, in also particularly in ancestry research. So the, in 2010, they filed the first of a series of 12 Chinese patent applications on ancestry inference marker technologies, uh, with several of these expressly targeting Uyghurs and or Tibetans. And uh, this targeting of Uyghurs is also evident in the rapid increase in the numbers of Uyghur test subjects. Uh, for example, the, a 2012 paper included only around 40 Uyghur subjects However, once this crackdown uh, the, intensified in 2013-2014 under the then new leader Xi Jinping, 
we saw a rapid increase in the numbers of Uyghurs and other Xinjiang peoples in the Institute of Forensic Sciences research papers, such as a 2016 article that included uh, 939 Uyghurs. And so this is part of a larger pattern of uh, targeting of the Uyghurs that began again in the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s. And so there's a number of problems here. Um, and then the uh, Visigen uh, Consortium was found. Okay, the Visigen Consortium uh, is a, a project that began in the late 2000s as well, about 2009. And it involves uh, prominent researchers from uh, projects like the Twins UK, uh, which is a well-known genetics research, long-term research project, uh, the Rotterdam study, and also uh, researchers from Australia uh, and the uh, Netherlands, or, uh, and also uh, Latin America as well. And what we have here is a... Uh, this group of researchers beginning a series of large projects. Uh, by 2016, uh, they had begun cooperation with the uh, with the Chinese Academy of Sciences, Max Planck Society Partner Institute of Computational Biology in Shanghai. Now, this uh, the Institute of uh, Partner Institute of Computational Biology in Shanghai had begun its own project uh, uh, involving Uyghurs and Han Chinese in about 2009. Uh, this is when it was first proposed. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be um, a study of facial shape and how this shifted due to evolutionary forces. But as typical, uh, we see this co-option of health or evolutionary research into forensic genetics. And so by 2012, the uh, Partner Institute of Computational Biology researchers were proposing to use this in forensic genetics. And by 2014 to 2016, they began cooperation on phenotyping research targeting Uyghurs with the uh, Chinese Ministry of Public Security's Institute of Forensic Science, effectively co-oping co-opting this evolutionary research on facial shape into uh, man the development of manhunting technologies that targeted Uyghurs. And it's also in this 2014 to 2016 period that the Visigen Consortium begins cooperation with this partner institute in Shanghai. Uh, so what we have is a situation where the Visigen Consortium uh, is cooperating with Chinese researchers at, you know, very important institutes in China. And then these same researchers in China are then cooperating with the Institute of Forensic Science of the Ministry of Public Security in Beijing. Uh, another important researcher involved, a pivotal figure in some of this Visigen uh, projects are uh, is a researcher uh, named Liu Fan, and he uh, studied at Erasmus University with Manfred Kaiser of Erasmus University, who's an eminent researcher in forensic genetics. And uh, he 
worked in a, as a, in a joint position uh, at Erasmus University. In 2015, Liu Fan was appointed to the Beijing Institute of Genomics in Beijing. And this is, again, a high-profile institute. And in the same year, 2015, the, in, the Beijing Institute of Genomics began a joint research center with the Ministry of Public Security's Institute of Forensic Science, which continues uh, to do joint research. And so what we get here are a set of relationships that are um, helping to develop the ability of the Chinese Ministry of Public Security's uh, Institute of Forensic Science in its efforts to develop uh, phenotyping technologies that uh, target Uyghurs. So given the, the sensitivity and the, the, the seriousness of, of um, the ethical implications surrounding genotyping and ancestry estimation, um, how do you see the future of population and forensic genetics? I think until recently, debates over population research and uh, evolutionary research being co-opted into forensic genetics have not really attracted much attention. Uh, my hope is now that with the uh, attention paid to the Uyghur issues, uh, that this will serve some good in provoking a, and a sustained critical debate and also supportive legislation over the role of racial categories and classifications in forensic genetics. Uh, there is a very strong resistance, however, uh, amongst many scientists uh, to this, to such oversight. Uh, many of them still view it as uh, an intrusion and that they are uh, capable of their own ethical self-regulation. But I think this is uh, the issues raised by this extensive cooperation during the um, during the 2010s targeting Uyghurs and also the longer term issues of routine violations of indigenous people's rights and dignity through the use of genetic samples taken 20 and 30, even almost 50 years ago now in the case of the Tacuna of Western Brazil, uh, their samples were taken in 1976. Uh, this is uh, raising a lot of major issues and I think that there has to be a much stronger public debate and scrutiny over the way in which forensic genetics has been developed and the way it is also being implemented. I think many thousands of people, for example, who have contributed samples to the Visigen uh, consortium, you know, people from the Twins UK project and also from the Rotterdam study, among others, would be very concerned to know that their genetics are being used or have been used, sorry, in the past in research uh, in, in conjunction with, you know, nearly 700 Uyghurs from the Xinjiang Uyghur study uh, to create technologies, you know, phenotyping technologies, uh, which are going to be used to hunt people, track them down, and, and as opposed to sort of health research. And this is, again, a major issue is there's a uh, a co-option of long-term health research projects and also of evolutionary genetic research in the name of public security into the development of these new 
technologies using what were once discredited concepts of race. And this is a very problematic and frankly, there's an underlying racism in the way in which this has been conducted. And it's all done again in the name of public security and improving safety. Yet what we see is mass violations of Indigenous people's rights and dignity, a violation of their sovereignty, violation of international norms, such as the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, uh, Section 31, which expressly says that Indigenous people should have a direct role in any research involving them. It violates, it has violated contemporary codes on secondary usages of genetic samples and data. And so what we see is a series of hierarchies of power being enacted that I think are very worrisome, uh, given the state of uh, forensic genetics and how rapidly it is advancing, how it is now being implemented, and how it is receiving massive amounts of funding from various governments, such as the US, the European Union, and China. So I, I'm very concerned about the future of this research uh, because of its uh, very problematic history, whether that be the, the use of these samples taken from Indigenous peoples decades ago to the contemporary way in, you know, in recent years, the way in which Uyghurs have been specifically targeted and the way in which many researchers refuse to acknowledge uh, ethical wrongdoing. And I think this is a, a major problem or a series of major problems, actually. It is indeed a very stimulating and uh, thought-provoking uh, discussion, especially for me as a scientist. Uh, so thank you very much for for all all, all this um, um, talk. So what are you currently working on? What's your next project? I'm working on the way in which uh, forensic genetics makes use of different types of categories uh, using concepts around uh, synecdoche and metonymy. And so I want to understand how these function in scientific organizing narratives, how to basically how scientists organize themselves. Uh, furthermore, I'm beginning research projects on um, the U.S. military's use of forensic genetics and also the use of uh, genetic selection of, of its elite special forces. Uh, this is a very worrisome development as well. So what we see is, again, the development of further technologies uh, with further ethical problems. And I guess the this will be my the next few years anyways. Mark, many thanks for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for your interest in my book.